Hello and welcome to the What The Heck podcast. I'm your host, Glenn. Every week I explore something unexplained, talk about what it is and look at what else it could possibly be. Research is done as academically as possible and references will be given after the stories. This week is a not so special Christmas episode. A mystery that happened in the Russian Ural Mountains. Today, I'm looking at the mysterious Dyatlov Pass incident. Before I begin, I'd like to preface this episode by saying that this is the longest one I've done so far. Writing it down is about 4,000 words, which is as long as some of the assignments I did in university. It was really in-depth. When I usually create episodes, I condense a lot of information that's less important. This mystery had no unimportant information, so I couldn't do that. Okay, preface done. Let's dive in. In January 1959, a group of 10 Soviet hikers set off from Sverdlovsk now Yekaterinburg, on the first leg of a journey to reach Mount Ortorton. Their journey had them taking the train from Sverdlovsk to Serov, and then from Serov to Ivdel. From there, they caught the bus to Vizhai. The group was led by Igor Dyatlov, a fifth-year radio engineering student. The other members of the group were Zineda Komogorova, who was also studying engineering, Yuri Doroshenko, who studied power economics, Alexander Kolvatov, who studied nuclear physics, Yuri Krivonyshenko, Rustam Slobodin, and Nicholas Thibault Brignoli, who studied engineering, Lyudmila Dubanina and Yuri Yudin, who studied economics, and Semyon Zolotarov, who was a sports instructor and older than the others. The group documented the journey in their journals, sent letters while they were in civilization, and took plenty of photographs. After a certain point, all of that stopped. I'll get to that in a bit. There's more setup to do. Dubanina the youngest of the group, and a member of the Young Communists, had a reputation as a stern and humorless. No. Dubanina, the youngest of the group, and a member of the Young Communists, had a reputation as stern and humorless. But her journal entries suggest that she was beginning to loosen up on the journey. One of the entries states, In the train, we all sang songs accompanied by a mandolin. Then, out of the blue, this really drunk guy came up to our boys and accused them of stealing a bottle of vodka. He demanded it back and threatened to punch them in the teeth. But he couldn't prove anything and eventually he got lost. We sang and sang and no one even noticed how we slipped into a discussion about love and kisses in particular. Komogorova wrote to her family when the group arrived at Serov, saying 
We are going camping, ten of us, and it's a great bunch of people. I have all the warm clothes I need, so don't worry about me. How are you? Has the cow calved yet? I love her milk. She also asked about her father's health, her mother's work, and urged her younger sisters to study harder at school. Kolmogorova and Dyatlov sent their letters from the post office in Vizhai, and the group spent the n- no. And the group spent the night there. In 1959, Stalin's oppression was gone. Khrushchev was in control and there was a sense of freedom in the air for the group. They had access to foreign literature, music and films. Dubonina talked about her excitement after seeing an Austrian musical about ice skating in her diary. The next morning, the group got on nope. The next morning, the group got a lift on a truck to a logging camp called the 41st Settlement. Here, they spent some time with the loggers, having a meal with them and discussing their favourite films. Komogorova wrote in her diary saying, It turns out that this is our last day of civilization and the last chance me and Liuda had to sleep in beds. Tonight, we are going to be in a tent. The group loaded up their rucksacks and set up their cross-country skis. It was January and the snow was likely deep, so it's assumed that the group followed the river valley and the hunting tracks of the indigenous people of the area, the Mansi. Along with their skis, the group had a horse-drawn sled that helped them carry their supplies along the last 15 miles to an abandoned settlement, the North Two Mine. Unfortunately for some, the travel was too much. Kolmogorova wrote in her diary, Yuri Yudin is leaving us today. His sciatic nerves have flared up again and he has decided to go home. Such a pity. We distributed load in our backpacks. Yudin had felt so awful that he had to return on the sled. He didn't want to leave, but put his health first. This decision was one that ultimately saved his life. After Yudin left the group, the rest of them continued onward towards Mount Ortorton. In the Mansi language, this name means mountain with swirling winds, but is often mistranslated as don't go there. The area the group were travelling through also held several prisons in a network known as Idvel Lug. During the time of the Gulags, this network saw inmates building roads, cutting and processing timber, and labouring in factories. The camp had the reputation of being one of the worst and most violent in the Gulag system. The group would have had to pass them on their journey before they skied along the Orspia River at the base of the mountain. Kolmogorova mentioned in her diary that it was getting colder. She also mentioned that Doroshenko's jacket had been singed in a previous campfire and he had been a little upset over it. 
Kolmogorova and Doroshenko had been in a relationship after he'd chased off a brown bear on a previous expedition. But he had broken things off before the group left for the mountain. She had mentioned in letters sent before leaving on the trip that she was worried about travelling with him on this one. Nothing more is mentioned in her journal though, so I was... So I would hazard a guess to say that it went well and they were okay together. The group travelled up the mountain and through a forest to get to the mountain proper. They made their way out onto the eastern slope of Kolatsyakil, which translates to the Mountain of Death. This isn't Dyatlov Pass. That's an area of the mountain named so after the incident. It lies a bit away from the site of the incident. On the night of February 1st, the group pitched their tent on that slope in a shallow pit they may have dug for shelter from the wind. They were about six miles from their final destination. That night, something happened to the group. The group's sports club was expecting a letter from the group. Dyatlov himself had agreed to sending a letter as soon as the group returned to Vizhai, which was assumed to be around February 12th. Dyatlov had told Yudin before he left the group that it would likely be longer. When the 12th came and went and no letter was received, there wasn't an immediate reaction because of that. By February 20th, the group's families were demanding a rescue operation to find the group. A search party was formed. On February 26th, the search party discovered the final camp of the group, the shallow pit that they had created to pitch their tent on February 2nd. The student who found the tent, Mikhail Sharavin, described its destruction. He found a single tent pole sticking out of the snow with a flashlight on top of the canvas. Sharavin tried to switch it on and it surprisingly still worked. Inside the tent, there was food that looked like it was being prepared for dinner and the tent had been cut open from the inside for some reason. There was nobody at the ruined camp. The next day, the search party began looking for the group. They found two bodies with reddish-brown hands and feet. One of the bodies was Doroshenko, and the second was Krivonishenko. Both were only in their underwear, and Krivonishenko had bitten off a piece of his own knuckle. They were discovered under a cedar tree, and upon closer inspection, there were the remains of a campfire and evidence that somebody had climbed the tree to break off the lower limbs to start the fire. Next to be found was Dyatlov. He was dressed, but without shoes. His body was face down in the snow and he was hugging a birch branch. Near to Dyatlov was Kolmogorova's body. From the positioning of it, it's believed that she died while scrambling back towards the tent. She had a long red bruise on her right side, making it look like she'd been hit by a baton of some form. 
All of the bodies were said to have died from hypothermia or frostbite. But these next bodies have serious injuries that could also have caused their deaths. Slobodin was found on March 5th. He was the best dressed so far, wearing a thermal undershirt and sweater, two pairs of trousers, four pairs of socks, and a single felt boot on his right foot. His skull was fractured. The search party had no luck in finding the others that spring. It wasn't until May, when the snow began to melt, that the final members of the group were discovered. In a ravine, four more bodies were found. Thibaut Brignoli had a fractured skull. Kolevatov had a wound behind his ear and his neck was twisted in a strange way. Dubanina and Zolotarov had multiple broken ribs. Zolotarov also had a wound on the side of his head that exposed the bone. Both Dubanina and Zolotarov were also missing their eyes and tongue. Dyatlov's sister, Tatiana, decided not to go to his funeral back in Sverdlovsk. She said later that her parents believed it would be too traumatic for her. She then said that she had seen a photograph of him in the coffin and said it was terrible and how he looked different to what he had looked like when he left. She said that her parents had only recognised him due to a gap he had between his teeth and that his hair had been grey upon his discovery. The parents of the group believed that the military had something to do with their deaths. The families were told that the lack of evidence made it hard to say what had happened and that they should stop asking questions. Due to the time and the fact that Russia was still a Soviet state, the families stopped asking questions in fear of repercussions. With almost no evidence, the Soviet investigators began to make reaches for suspects. The only people in the area, the indigenous Mansi, were the prime suspects. The investigators arrested a lot of people in the community nearest the incident, and some of the Mansi believed the arrested people had been tortured because they were kept and interrogated for weeks. Because they couldn't find any evidence of Mansi involvement, the investigators released their prisoners and asked again for Mansi aid. This was during the May of 1959, when the snow had begun to melt. With Mansi involvement, scraps of cloth were discovered that led a search party down to the ravine containing the final four bodies. The scraps of cloth included parts of Dubonina's sweater. The suspicion on the Mansi still lingers, and in 2015, a book was published that suggested that some of the Mansi hunters had taken some magic mushrooms as part of a ritual and murdered the group in anger after discovering they were on Mansi sacred land. The Mansi dismissed the theory and believed that if the investigators behind the Mansi had any involvement, they would all have been arrested and either imprisoned or executed by firing squad. All of the investigations petered out over time, 
and an answer hasn't really been found. Although this story is already the longest I've done and has led me down an insane rabbit hole. Even still, let's look at some theories. Most of the reason behind the length of this story is the sheer amount of information that's involved in it. Usually I condense stories to involve just the main information, but that was impossible for this episode. Then, when looking at theories, I found not just a rabbit hole. It's a full sinkhole of theories. It turns out that, unlike many other places in the Western world, who have conspiracies on the outer fringes of society. Russia integrates conspiracy theories into their lives. This meant that there was a whole basket of theories to look at this week. Let's dive in. The first theory, which doesn't have much information with it, is that the Russian military were involved during the incident. There are two versions of this though. The first is that they noticed the tent and killed the group. The other is that there were some kind of experiments being performed on the mountain. This one is much deeper. The experiments are never revealed, but range from creating super soldiers that escaped and attacked the group to experiments using radiation. Radiation is important here because the bodies registered some radiation upon discovery. There's another possibility for the radiation, comets. In a BBC article exploring the incident, a reporter met a Mansi woman named Sanka. On the night of the incident, Sanka had been out in the forest to collect firewood. On their return to the village, she recalled seeing a light in the sky. She described it as wider at the front and narrower at the back, with a tail, and there were sparks flying off it. That sounds like a comet, but the Mansi elders warned that it was a bad omen, and probably not the actual cause of the incident. In another BBC article exploring the incident, a reporter visits one of the people affected by the incident, Yuri Konsevich. Yuri is an expert in the incident and remembers seeing the bodies at the funeral. He remembers that their skin was the colour of bricks and mentions the rumours of the experiments in the mountains. His theory delves even deeper though. Yuri believes that the group was murdered at the campsite, taken away from the mountain then flown back to Kolat-Siakil later and arranged to make it look like they had frozen to death. A third person was interviewed in the BBC article. Oleg Arkhipov had written three books on the subject, but also knew the original lead investigator and had information from him too. Oleg believes that the lead investigator had discovered that the group's injuries had been caused by an explosive wave, but had been told to close the case by his superiors. The information from the case 
had been passed to Oleg and revealed that the autopsies had been conducted with security from the KGB and that a large barrel of alcohol had been delivered to the makeshift morgue before the autopsies. At the time, alcohol was believed to be a protection against radiation. What the investigator believes had happened is never explained, but Oleg believes the secrecy means that something was going on. So far, none of these theories explains the injuries that the group sustained. Recently, the film Frozen has caused researchers to look into a phenomenon called slab avalanches. Now, initially people said that there could have been a full avalanche. Others then said that the slope was too shallow for that. They thought that the slope was very mild but this has since been debunked. The slope itself was closer to 30 degrees, which is the minimum requirement for avalanches. In 2019, Alexander Puzrin began an inquiry into it. Along with Johan Gohm, the head of the Snow Avalanche Simulation Laboratory in a Swiss technical institute, they ran several tests into causes of potential avalanches. There had been no snowfall the night of the incident, so that was immediately ruled out. The reports from the initial investigation described a layer of snow under the top layer that was rather loose, which would provide a slippery base for snow to move on. The group had dug into the snow to pitch the tent, which could have then destabilized the snow underneath. But in order for an avalanche to happen, more snow would need to fall. Well, the journals may have solved that a little. They describe strong winds in their final entries. These winds could have been what is known as catabatic winds, which is frigid air that brings snow down from higher up the mountain, which would have increased the amount of snow above the camp. It also explains why there was a delay between the camp setup and the incident. These simulations showed that the avalanche didn't need to be that big to cause so much damage, maybe just the size of an SUV. With the release of Frozen, Gohm visited Hollywood and met the specialist who worked on the snow effect. He modified the snow animation code to allow him to simulate the impact an avalanche would have on the human body. After then looking at the simulations of General Motors seatbelt tests, they discovered that there was another variable, support bracing. Some of the group had placed their bedding on top of their skis, which was related to some of the tests involved with General Motors. Using these variables, they discovered that the 16-foot block of snow could easily break the ribs and skulls of those sleeping on the rigid skis. The injuries would be severe, but not immediately fatal. But all of the injuries were blunt force. That doesn't quite explain the missing eyes and tongue. The next, less scientific theory is that the group had been attacked by the Russian Yeti. These ape-like creatures are related to the Himalayan Yeti and the Sasquatch, 
or Bigfoot of North America. There is possibly evidence of the group spotting or interacting with one in the forest at the base of the mountain, with someone having taken a blurry photo of a strangely tall creature looking out from behind a tree. The final theory I have, and one that doesn't really explain their injuries, is known as the paradoxical undressing theory. This theory goes under the assumption that the group was suffering from hypothermia. Paradoxical undressing occurs in around 25% of hypothermia cases and causes the sufferer's hypothalamus to malfunction, sending signals out to say that the body's temperature is rising when instead it's dropping. This causes people to undress to cool down, causing more problems as their body temperature continues to drop. Like I said, it doesn't actually explain any of the injuries. But then I remembered that Zolotaron had actually served in World War II. During the confusion in the snow, with his friends going crazy, he could have snapped and murdered them. However, there's no evidence to say that he did. And he also had an unexplained wound on his head. So it's not likely that he actually had anything to do with it. This mystery is 65 years old, and there are over 75 theories. I went into the most prevalent, and the ones with some scientific backing or evidence behind them. There are plenty more of them floating around. The most likely cause was a slab avalanche, but in order for that to be the cause, something had to have caused the loss of organs in two of the ravine bodies. The case itself is open again, with the Russian Prosecutor General's Office announcing it in February 2019. They are investigating three possible causes, all related to extreme weather. They may discover something we don't know, but I definitely think that something more supernatural happened. For now, though, it's still unsolved. Today's story came from a BBC article called The Mystery of Dyatlov Pass and an article on Atlas Obscura called The Dyatlov Pass Incident. Theories came from an article in The Atlantic called The Russian Conspiracy Theory That Won't Die, an article in National Geographic called How Science Solved One of History's Greatest Adventure Mysteries, the BBC article and the Atlas Obscura article. I'm also going to include the link to the Gome and Puzrin study because it's actually quite interesting. References for the episode and links to studies will be posted on social media for you to have a look at. Speaking of social media, you can currently find me on Facebook at What The Heck Mystery Podcast, Instagram at WT Heck Podcast, and you can also support me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash What The Heck Podcast. Just £3 a month will get you access to the unedited versions of the episodes so you can hear all the mess-ups I make while recording. I am getting better at that, so I may start uploading the transcripts of the episodes instead because I'm making less mess-ups and it seems like a poor trade-off to pay £3 for the same episode I release. £3 is the lowest I can go as well, so I can't make it less, unfortunately. More tiers will be added as we go, 
and as I find more things to share with you outside of the episodes. If you want to pledge more than £3 a month, you're more than welcome to, and I'll have to find something extra special just for anyone who does. I've also set up an email address, watchtheheckpod3 at gmail.com. I'd like you to send in your stories of the unexplained so I can read them out in secondary episodes. But if you have any issues with my phrasing or think some of the things I've said are insensitive, please don't be afraid to let me know and I'll address them in episodes as I record them. The next episode may be much shorter than this and will be out on January 5th. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you can find some sinkhole mysteries like this again, even though it takes a long time to join the information together. I'll see you next week for the next episode. Thank you.